you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is where we are. And we're going to start in verse 9 today. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. So you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. We will put it on the screen as well. But let's read the passage together to begin. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come." And who can stand? Let's pray together. Father, we are in the part of Revelation now that becomes more difficult. We are leaving the shallow end of the pool and we're getting into the deep waters of this book. And so, Lord, my prayer is is that as we look into it together and we study it together, God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you'd help us to understand what is written here and that it is written for our benefit, that it is your word to us. It's your word, Lord, to your church for our benefit so that we would understand the things that are yet to come. Be with us, Jesus. Be with us, Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, church, we looked at the first eight verses And these tell us of the opening of the first four seals. Now, if you missed last week, that's okay, but make sure you go back and you read through uh, chapter 6 and and verses 1 through 8 because we saw the opening of the first four seals. And and we we talked about how that really, uh, those verses, those first four seals and the four riders of the apocalypse, one of the most common images in the book of Revelation, when, when people think about the book of Revelation, it's what they think about often. They think about the four riders. We talked about how those four riders really represent the sinfulness of people and depravity 
and the effects of the fall. So we talked about war from without. We talked about war from within, civil war, civil strife within a nation. We talked about um, famine and pestilence, disease, and how all of these things uh, are the, the symbol for these in the text would be those four riders. And so now as we come to verse 9, we see the opening of the fifth seal. And the focus is shifted from what we were looking at that was very focused on the earth and the sinfulness of men. Now the focus is shifted back to the throne room of heaven. And so let's look at that together as we have been doing. Let's just go through it verse by verse. Verses 9 and 10 to start with. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had, they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Let's unpack this a little bit. The souls of the martyrs being under the altar seems reminiscent of the Jewish sacrificial system. Because what would happen is that the sacrifice would be slaughtered on the altar and the blood would drain down underneath the altar. It's the very imagery that they use here in verse 9. John says he sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. He sees the souls of those who had been martyred for their faith. For those who had stayed true to their belief in, in following Christ, and for that they paid the ultimate price. They were martyred for their faith, and John sees their souls here. Earlier in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to view his own martyrdom as an offering that he would pour out to the Lord. Let me show you that passage where he says this. This is, this is in 2 Timothy, and we believe that 2 Timothy was written days, maybe weeks, before Paul would be executed by the Romans. And so here Paul says to Timothy, his son in the faith, that he's handing the baton over to. He's handing the reins of the church over to this young pastor in Ephesus. And he's saying, Timothy, you're going to have to lead, and here's why. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm already being sacrificed, is what he's saying. The time of my departure has come. Paul wrote to the Philippians probably years earlier than this, and he wrote, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul saw his eventual martyrdom as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that is the imagery that we have here in Revelation chapter 6. These followers of Christ that are crying out to God in these verses had been slain for their commitment to their faith. They had been martyred for the faith, and now they're crying out for justice. I don't think revenge, and there is a big difference between those two. They're crying out for justice. Justice and revenge are very different things. I believe that they're 
prayer here is a plea for justice. What they're concerned about is the glory of God, and they want justice to be done. It's not the first time in Scripture that a prayer like this has been prayed. This is what's called an imprecatory prayer, and it's a big word, imprecatory. You might have to practice that a few times to get it right. But this is called an imprecatory prayer. It's a plea for justice. It's a, a cry for vindication. And, and there are many examples of imprecatory prayers throughout the Psalms. If you want to do a little research on this, just jot this down on, on your note sheet in the bulletin real quick. But write down Psalm 12 and Psalm 35, Psalm 52, Psalms 57 through 59. These are all examples of what are called imprecatory prayers. And it's interesting because we also see this in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to tell a metaphor years before what John sees here, but Jesus tells a metaphor where we see that God comes to the aid of his children who will consistently cry out to him for justice. I love this passage. I love this story. It's a, it's a short story that Jesus tells that beautifully illustrates the point right now. Jesus told this parable. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then listen to what Jesus says next, the point that he makes here. Because this is an unjust judge. This is the, the picture that Jesus has painted of this man is that he's kind of ruthless. He really doesn't care about people. The only reason he gets up in the middle of the night and answers her plea is because she keeps pounding on the door and he's tired of getting woken up at night. And so this, listen to what Jesus says. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? One of the things that we learn from this parable, church, is that the characteristic, what characterizes a healthy faith is a healthy prayer life. Let me say that differently. Our prayer life is evidence of our faith. It's one of the very important points that Jesus is making in telling this parable. We can know that we have faith in Christ by the quality of our prayer life. That's evidence of our faith. But the point that Jesus is making here that totally ties into what we're studying in Revelation 6 is that if this is how an unjust judge acts, if he's going to give this widow justice just because she has worn him out, how much more so when you go before a God who loves you and you are his child and he's a just, righteous God and you wear him out with your prayers, how much more is he going to delight in giving you what you want? Amen? 
And that's the point that Jesus is making here. Now, going back to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, the martyrs describe God as holy and true. So important. God is holy and true. That's what they say in verse 10. God is totally separate from evil. His justice on those who have taken the lives of his children. His justice on those who have taken the lives of his children is going to flow out of his perfect holiness. It's going to flow out of his perfect righteousness. There isn't a contradiction there. God is holy and true and righteous, church, and one day his justice that will flow out against those who have taken the lives of his faithful will come from that very righteousness, from that holiness. How does God respond to their question? Look at verse 11 in Revelation chapter 6. We see his answer because they've asked him a question, right? They've asked him, how long? How long will it be? And this is, their, this is the response from God. Then they were each given a white robe. This is the martyrs to the martyrs and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what happens here in this verse? Each of them is given a, a white robe. This is symbolic of purity. The white robe in Scripture is symbolic of purity. It's symbolic of victory. They are victorious. They are pure. They are holy. Second, they're told to rest a little bit longer. Why? Why are they told to rest a little bit longer? The answer is right there in the verse. There are yet more who will lay down their lives for their faith. The number of martyrs is not yet complete, so they need to wait. It's not going to happen yet. Remember, this is the fifth seal. Remember the imagery, the scroll, the seven seals on the scroll. They're coming off one by one. But until that seventh seal is off, the scroll is still closed. We're not yet in the end times. So everything we've looked at, right, with the first five seals coming off, war from without, war from within, disease, famine, martyrdom, all of these things, all five of these things have happened throughout Christian history. This is not yet the end. These are signs that the end is one day coming, but they're not, it's not yet the end. This very day, this very day, we may have brothers and sisters around the globe, church, who die for their faith. That's reality. We experience religious liberty in our nation, and I don't think any of us right now are concerned that the government is going to rush in the store and take our lives. But that's not true across the globe. There are places where that's a legitimate concern. This seal that is coming off of the scroll, this is happening, and it's been happening since the birth of the church. Let's go to verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. I believe, and this is just Pastor Terry's opinion. If you have a different opinion, that's okay. I believe the sixth seal 
marks the beginning of the end. I think this is when the end times events start. And, and read this with me and the, this verse and the next couple and see if you come to that same conclusion. The signs that mark the return of Christ and the end are now beginning with verse 12. This is the sixth of seven seals that need to be removed from the scroll to be opened. Now, earthquakes are something we've always experienced. Earthquakes are not something new with end times. We, we know about earthquakes. Earthquakes have happened throughout history. However, in the Old Testament, they are often a common sign that indicates the presence of God. Let me just show you a, a verse here on this, a couple verses maybe. Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. Enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. It was a sign of God's presence. And with the great earthquake that happens here in Revelation 6, there are other signs with the opening of the sixth seal that are not common at all that we see in this verse in Revelation 6. Things like the sun turning black, the moon being blood red. Both of these, though, have been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. So this is something that they would expect as a part of end times events. These are, in theology, we'd say they're eschatological. They're, they're signs of the end. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says, the, sh the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before these things that are happening now as the... Wait a minute. Seal 6, this is something altogether new. And Joel 2.31 says that this is going to happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What else happens as the sixth seal is opened? Let's look at verse 13 and 14 together. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. It's, an imagery, it's imagery here to, to kind of explain what this must have looked like as John was watching it. And then look what he writes next. This isn't something you see every day. Being rolled up and, and every mouth, as the stars fall, the sky vanishes. The Greek word here that's actually used in Revelation is the word apekoriste. And what apekoriste really, if you translate it 100% accurately, what it means, it means it's split apart. It had been prophesied back in Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Same idea, it's split apart. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a judgment on sinful man. And rich and powerful and free fall on of the... If we believe that the Word of God is the truth, that it's the author authoritative, true Word of the living God, is that what we believe, church? Then this is so on the earth at some point in history. I want you to notice the seven groups of people, that the seven groups of people listed here cover the entire socioeconomic spectrum I just want you to see that. It, from the, the most powerful and elite to the poorest slave. A, across the world, everybody is included. Nobody escapes it. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how much power you have, it doesn't, 
matter how much influence you have, you will not be able to escape this judgment that comes with the sixth seal. How afraid would you have to be to want to die in an avalanche? To cry out to the mountains, fall on me, because I can't face what's coming. That's what these people are experiencing. And, and notice how that passage ends with a question. Who can stand? Who can stand against this? And what we know from God's word is that only those who have been redeemed, only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation will be able to stand on that day. Amen? Church, this is heavy stuff. Again, we've left the shallow end of the pool. Here is how I want to end our time today. Now, don't, don't choke when I say this and don't run out the door till I have a chance to explain it. I want to challenge all of us to be martyrs this week. Some of you are like, what, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what, did, what did I walk into? Well, before you get nervous, let me make sure you understand the definition of that word. Because I want to challenge every single one of us to be martyrs this week. If we are defining martyrdom as dying for our faith, then obviously, this is common sense, none of us in this room are martyrs yet, right? <laughs> You're here. So if we're defining martyrdom as dying for the faith, and obviously none of us have been martyred yet, and, and Lord willing, none of us are going to experience that, at least in the near future. We shouldn't seek death. Never in Scripture, never in God's Word, is, is the admonition to seek your own death, ever. As a matter of fact, the early church started to have a little bit of a problem with this around the second or third century, where that's exactly what people would do. The Romans were persecuting the church violently. Families were being, you've seen movies and, and illustrations of this. Families were being thrown into the gladiators and to the lions, and people started to seek after martyrdom, and the church actually had to write a statement that said, look, if you're looking for it, it's not real. You shouldn't seek your own death. That's not what Scripture ever says. We ought to seek life. We as Christ followers aren't looking for death. We're looking for abundant life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Also, let me clear up another misconception. There's a connotation with the word martyr that we're certainly not looking for. Uh, you know, you've heard it said this Maybe you've said this to someone else, or maybe someone has said this to you before. Oh, you're such a martyr. What are they saying in that statement, or what are you communicating? You know, oh, you're what a victim. Well, that's not what we're talking about either, is it? We're not talking about looking to die, and we're certainly not talking about playing the victim. So let's actually talk about and think about what this word actually means. Let me show you. The Greek word martus, you can hear the connection there phonetically, can't you? The Greek word martus that we translate into the English word martyr actually means witness. 
It actually means to be a witness. It's what the word literally means. The, the verb form of this word, which is martureo, means to bear witness to something or to testify to something. It's only later in church history after the witness of those who are following Christ because they were bearing witness to the gospel that it led to their death that martyr, the word, took on the connotation of dying for their faith. But it's not what it originally meant. It originally meant to bear witness, not to die, but to bear witness. But so many people who were bearing witness in that time period and today in certain parts of the world, as I said, died for their faith that the word took on that connotation as well. So knowing that a martyr is a witness, shouldn't all followers of Jesus decide, shouldn't we want to be martyrs? Really? I mean, shouldn't we? Isn't that, shouldn't that be our goal? That we would all be witnesses to the faith? And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in that way today to think of yourself as a martyr by the actual definition of the word, that you are a witness to Christ. Listen, this may, as Jesus said it would, this may lead to persecution in some way. But that's up to God. It's up to, it's up to the Lord to decide whether my witness to Christ should lead to my death or lead to a job loss, or lead to a loss of a relationship, or lead to more abundant life. That's up to the Lord to decide that. My job is to be faithful in bearing witness to Christ. Amen? That's my role in this. God decides the outcome. I'm faithful. He decides what happens because I'm faithful. Dr. Craig Keener writes about this idea of witness and what it can cost us, and he makes this statement. He says, the gospel is worth our lives, and all we have and no cost is too great to reach the world for Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel, church, is worth our lives and all that we have. And there is no cost that is too great to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And, and here's not, here's, this isn't the question I've been thinking about, but this is often the way it's thought about when we talk about this idea of martyrdom. I haven't been thinking about the question, would I die for Jesus? I just haven't been consumed with that question lately. When I was younger, I thought about that a lot. I thought about the question, would I die for Jesus? Here's the conclusion I think I've come to. I don't think any of us can possibly know until we're put in that situation. I don't think that you can know what you would do until you are put in that situation where you'd have to make that decision, where literally your commitment to Christ would lead to your immediate death. I just don't think it's possible to know what you'd do. And, and people throughout Christian history have gone both ways with that. People who claimed Christ, followed Christ, and they're put in that situation, and many have chosen to die for their faith, and many have, have chosen to recant their faith in that moment. If you want a great 
book on that. That's a novel and a, and a tremendous read. Pick up a book called Silence by Shusako Endo. Shusako Endo. Endo, sorry, had his pronunciation of his last name. He's a Japanese Christian writing about Christianity in Japan, but he masterfully talks about this idea of making that decision and what's involved in making that decision to die for one's faith in the form of a novel. So I would strongly recommend that book to you. Here's the question that I've been wrestling with a lot lately. It's this, will I ever truly live for Jesus? It's not, will I die for Jesus? But the question I've been struggling with lately is, will I ever truly live for Jesus? And some of you are thinking, you're our pastor, and you're telling me you don't truly live for Jesus? Well, give me a little grace, and let me, let me share a little more on that. What I mean by that is living fully surrendered. Fully surrendered. And if I were honest with you, church, I can't claim that yet. I cannot claim that I am living a life that is fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As I have come to understand more and more throughout my walk with Christ what that means. You see, it's very easy for me to stand up here and preach to you that there is no cost too great to reach the world for Jesus. And yet, if I am real with you, and I am honest with you about my own struggles, I have to tell you that I struggle every single day to sacrifice silly things for the sake of greater things. Every day I struggle with that, to sacrifice silly things for the sake of greater things. I constantly, constantly turn away from the mission that Jesus has given to all of us for things that won't last. I turn away for ridiculous things. Here's the mission that Christ has laid before us, the Great Commission, the gospel, the salvation of our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and complete strangers, and I turn away from that for the most absurd, ridiculous things that will never last and have no value whatsoever. Am I the only one in the room? Maybe a few others. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, the world burns. And, and I'm not, I have no desire to be overly dramatic here. I, I really believe that. When I say that, it's because it's what I really believe. While I am hiding from the mission, chasing after ridiculous things, the world is on fire. People are dying around us every single day without Christ. Church, they, they enter into eternity with absolutely no hope. They're these people that are crying out, mountain, fall on me because I can't face what's coming. And, and I turn away from the mission that Christ, our King, the one who sacrificed all for me, to chase after junk. I wanted to use a stronger word there, but I didn't think you'd appreciate it as... It's the truth. 
What should our lives be about? What will give Christ the most glory? Church, what, what will bring us the most joy? What will give God the most glory and what will give us the most joy? What will actually bring us into the abundant life that Jesus died to give us? I open my Bible and I read the words of the one who loves me the most and I'm pretty sure knows what will truly give me abundant life. I mean, I believe this. I believe that Christ knows what will give me abundant life. With all my heart, I believe that. And this is what he tells me. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the point of the parable? When you find the gospel, when you find the truth, you're willing to surrender and get rid of all the junk because you finally have found what life is all about. Jesus also said this, he said, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Church, listen, it's, it's been said that if you wanted to develop a religious system that is completely contradictory to the teachings of Christ, you would design evangelical Christianity in the United States. And I think there's so much truth there because I read these passages and I actually listen to what Jesus is saying and I have not been living up to this. And I don't see this in our churches. I don't see this type of radical abandonment to following Christ. And the question that I'm asking myself today is, am I ever going to truly get this right? Am I ever going to truly surrender everything else because I found the pearl of great price? And because I don't want to save my life, I want to lose my life for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And there, I know there are many who would say, but we can't save everyone. We can't do it all. And we need to enjoy life. And I, I hear that, and I know that ultimately it is God it's not you or me that saves people. I know my theology says that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit breathing life into dry bones, that that's God who does that, and I believe that. And yet when I look at Scripture, I see a call to a more radical life that is compelling, and I wonder, would I know more of the abundant life that Jesus came to give me if I could just surrender more? Would I know more of that abundance if I could lay down more to him? If I just 
walked away more from the world. And I look at Christian history, and I look at the lives of those that we read about from our faith who have run this race before us, many who lived their lives constrained by the Great Commission. They did surrender everything else. They left family, they left their homes, they left any chance of abundance and wealth. They certainly didn't have time for hobbies. And they live lives completely constrained by the gospel. They didn't seem to have a preoccupation with the lesser things that I get so caught up with. I just want to give you one example as I close this morning. It's just a beautiful, beautiful woman and example of an abundant life. Many of you know her story. Amy Carmichael was born in Ireland in 1867. She was the oldest of seven children. Her parents were faithful followers of Jesus and raised their children in the faith. When Amy was a little girl and it was time for evening prayers, this is just precious, she would ask Jesus to come and sit next to her on the bed. She wanted to not only speak to him but to listen to him. As a teenager, Amy became involved with ministry to the poorest of the poor in Belfast. She shared food and the gospel with them and then organized Bible studies so that they could grow in their faith. This ministry grew so large that a building was purchased. This is a teenage girl running this. 500 girls were coming to Amy's Bible studies. They had to buy a building to house them all. Amy then felt the Lord leading her to go to the poorest part of Manchester. She lived in the worst area in terrible conditions in order to be salt and light. It was during this time that she first heard missionary pioneer Hudson Taylor speak, and this encounter changed her life. She felt God's call to world missions. However, her road would not be easy. She applied to the China Inland Mission and was rejected for being in poor health. She lived in Japan for a year, but again, due to her health, she had to return to England. It took her a long time to recover physically. At the age of 27, the ripe old age of 27, she left for India, learning the Tamil language and studying Hindu culture. She began reaching women and girls who were prostitutes in the Hindu temple with the gospel. Often these girls would be tortured or murdered for converting to Christianity. However, more and more girls came to Amy. Amy became Amma to them. Amma is the Tamil word for mother. When the girls were asked what drew them to Amy, they replied, love, Amma loves us. She served the Lord by loving these women and girls for the next 55 years. She developed a hospital, ministered to thousands of people, and developed a Protestant religious order called the Sisters of the Common Life. When she was in her 60s, she had a serious injury and was no longer able to walk. She spent the next 20 years directing the work from her bedroom. It was during this time that she wrote 16 more books. When she died in 1951, she asked that there not be a gravestone. The women of the mission overruled her, though, but instead of a gravestone, they put a birdbath. You see it on the screen there. It's still there today. Over the grave, and they inscribed one word, Amma.
Would you bow your head, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. Just as the worship team comes, I want to ask you this question. Did Amy Carmichael waste her life? With your head, heads bowed and eyes closed. Just think about this. Did Amy Carmichael waste her life? Would, would her life have been more abundant if she had lived for the accumulation of wealth and her hobbies? I don't think so. Jesus had laid a great mission before her, and she had answered that call. She lived a life of radical purpose. Listen, church, because this is what we seem, and I'm, believe me, my fingers are pointing back at me right now. This is what we seem to not understand. Christ has laid a great mission before us. Christ has laid a great mission before all of us, before each of us, just like Amy. We look at an Amy Carmichael in church history and we think, oh, she's altogether different. We put her on a pedestal. We put her in a whole different category. She's different than me. Christ has laid a great mission before all of us. The Great Commission, the salvation of our families, the salvation of our friends, of our neighbors, our co-workers, total strangers, the care of our community, the care of the poor, the hungry, the sick, the care of children in our foster care system, people in recovery, people still trapped in the chains of addiction, people in jail and prison, people returning to the community from jail and prison. Time is short, church. We do not know how many more days each of us has been given. The question that each of us has to ask ourselves is will we ever truly live for Jesus? What will we do with the time that we've been given? Whether that's a day, a year, 10 years, 50 years, what will we do with the time that we've been given? And, and here, I want to remind you of the words of Dr. Keener. No cost, no cost is too great to reach the world for Jesus. Amen? So let's just not say it. Let's dare to live it. Let's dare to live it and so enter into that abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I ask that you would be praying for me that I would lay down and surrender lesser things. And that will be my prayer for you, that we as a church will learn to lay down and surrender lesser things because greater things are right in front of us for the taking. They're the work that God created for us to do before we were even born. It's right there. And Jesus is saying to us, just reach out and grab it and take it. I have greater things for you. And that's how you will experience the abundant life that I came to give you.